Tom's Rage It was some months before Tom and Reginald saw each other again. Both were tempted to write letters to each other to luxuriate in the bitter monomania of delivered and unanswerable absolutes. Reginald started one such letter many times, hoping to achieve a regal tone of magnanimous injury. No matter how many times he tried, a raging tone of public humiliation kept cropping up. But he kept at it, and his last draft, which he finally sent, went thus. February 2nd, 1935. Dear Tom, I am writing in the hopes that something might be salvaged from our relationship. For reasons I do not pretend to understand, we have always had a strained intimacy. I have done what I could to ease this tension. I always did my best to help you in school. I introduced you to a good social set. I helped you swat. I always advanced your cause, even when, as so often happened, others criticized you heavily. Tom, it was not my fault that you had to leave Oxford. This seems a point so obvious that it should scarcely need restating, but it seems to have escaped your attention. I have always had your best interests at heart. I have no idea how to convince you of this. You seem so obsessed with thinking the worst of me and anyone like me that anything I could say on this point would be pointless. You have your own fixed ideas. I will not dignify them by pretending that they have anything to do with me. It is also probably not worth restating that the entire family is very anxious about you. Mother, in particular, worries herself sick about your future. Father seems to have given up on you. I tried to plead your case, but he refuses to discuss it, and as yet I have been unable to make any headway. Tom, please try to understand this much at least. We are worried about you because we love you. We are not trying to control you, corner you, force you to do anything or inhibit your personality. We just believe that sitting in a room and stewing in endless resentment at the vicissitudes of life is a very poor way to conduct one's affairs. All is not lost. It is entirely possible that your talents, which are not inconsiderable, might not go entirely to waste. Through my influence at the Foreign Office, I would be more than happy to arrange for a clerking position of some kind. Though the starting salary and position would be poor, it is my belief that as long as you keep your tendency to self-pity and physical aggression in check, you could rise in time. We are not all built for world affairs. Just as I accepted my limitations in your spheres, athletics, womanizing, I invite you to accept your own limitations. We cannot ever be everything we think we can be, or fantasize that we have the ability to become. You are human. You are mortal. You have limitations. You cannot excel everywhere. Life is not an endless rowing race. As for our recent political debacle, I would be remiss in my duty to truth and honor if I did not tell you honestly and openly that I consider your behavior utterly despicable. To hijack a public debate of mine, one which was important for my career, for the sake of exposing your own ill-informed apocalyptic ramblings, is something that, upon reflection, I can never forget or forgive. The only chance that we have for any kind of relationship in the future is for this to become a completely closed subject. I shall never speak to you of it. I do not hope that you are capable of respecting my wishes. All I will say is that if you attempt to speak to me of it, I shall leave the room, leave your life, and never return. With all hopes for the future, and looking forward to some kind of reasonable response, I remain your brother, Reginald. Tom flinched when he received this letter. He felt sick when he opened it and read through it several times, his blood pounding more and more fiercely each time. It was masterly. It put the onus completely on him. It clearly indicated that Tom was unstable and full of rage. It was a neat 
circle, you are full of rage, is a terrible insult. To respond angrily is to confirm the diagnosis. To respond calmly is impossible. To not respond at all will be perceived as huffing and sulking. And the number of insults in the one-page letter. Tom scanned through it, making mental notes. Reginald does not understand why we are not intimate, insinuating that our distance is entirely my fault. He has done a number of good things for me, including defending me from increasing criticism. He is the knight, and I the blackguard. He assumes that I blame him for leaving Oxford? A straw man argument both confirms me as unstable and unable to retain my position at Oxford, but I have never said such a thing. He believes that I am obsessed with thinking the worst of him? What does he think of me? Not one positive thing. Ah, enlisting the family. Mother is worried sick. Father has given up. Reginald pleads my case. His virtue, my fault. If my family has a problem with me, they should damn well say so themselves. And then the gentle Daggered concern. We are worried about you because we love you. Ah, they are not trying to corner me. When have I ever complained about that? Ever? Again, a straw man argument. The patient older brother tries to calm the unstable and defensive younger brother. Ah, but he might be able to get me a job in the FO as a clerk of all the goddamn presumption, which I might rise in should I control my criminal tendencies. What nobility on the part of Sir Reginald. Accept my limitations. Was leaving Oxford rather than spout something as poisonous as Marxism a limitation or the only possible honourable decision? Ah, oh, where would I be without my brother to patiently remind me that I am mortal and human? God, say it isn't so! We are not all built for world affairs. Translation. I will negotiate for England. You copy my speeches, and do not try to throw your inkwell at anyone. Tom's hands were shaking. The letter was so insulting, so condescending, and so utterly unanswerable. Reginald was a master at making other people mad with anger and then calling them crazy. He was a goddamned virus. But thought Tom, placing the letter down carefully. I have been sitting in this room for quite some time. That is the damnable thing about family. They tell you just enough truth to hurt, but not enough to help. So, let us say that my apprenticeship is over, and I am ready to take my place in the world for the few years that remain to us until the bombs begin to fall. Sitting at his desk, Tom felt a great wave of exhaustion overrun him. Half staggering, he got up and almost collapsed on his bed. It is worse than a fatal diagnosis, because when I die in a few years, the world will die as well, and not even my works will remain. I could write a beautiful novel about older brothers, and it could be loved, and I could be showered with much manner, and then it shall all be vaporized. Me, readers, books, reviews, banks, money. Physical shocks like this had been common for him since coming back from Germany nine months previously. He had expected to have a meeting with Gunther to report on his findings, but the older man had been out of the country, busy with something he said he was not at liberty to discuss in a letter. Tom had written a few pages of his impressions of Germany and mailed them off to Gunther, but had heard nothing back for the past six months other than a note saying that he had received the work with thanks and that he expected to be back in England in early 1934. However, along with the depression he had experienced after returning from Germany had come another kind of emotion. It was something that he had never experienced before. It was something that Reginald, with his near-supernatural sensitivity to Tom, seemed to have picked up somehow from the ether. It was rage. 
He had first become aware of it through his dreams. He had always dreamt of flying, but now he was flying in an aeroplane, fighting in an endless blue arena streaked with smoke and clouds and blood. He felt such hatred towards his opponents, sometimes Reginald, sometimes Klaus, and once Martin, piloting a little flying church with his children throwing fruit from the roof, that on awakening the emotions did not recede. It did not feel destabilizing. He was afraid of his growing rage at first. He was afraid of turning into one of those muttering, clenched tramps. But it did not happen, quite the reverse. He had a strong desire to walk after waking up from one of his dreams, no matter what the weather, and so he would throw on an anorak and stride out. And as he walked, he continued to feel the rage, but he also felt an almost holy love of early morning existence. He loved the grocer putting out his fruit. He loved the broad-hipped matron with the multi-infant pram. He loved the East Indian man running in Hyde Park. He loved the little Japanese men and women doing their flowing dances. He loved the sullen, lonely youth loitering outside the locked library, obviously afraid to go home. He even loved the final exodus of exhausted streetwalkers. He loved that they might still have a grain of love left in their pillaged hearts. He loved the cats, even the hissing ones, with nothing to defend. He loved the dogs that trailed him, even the aggressive ones. They wanted life so badly that they growled at huge apes. All the world made him cry. All the world made him cry because it loved life, and life was going to end. Parents would watch their children melting in their melting arms. Babies would expand and explode in the heat like pink watermelons stuffed with grenades. Tom flinched from these visions as he walked. He flinched from the idea of girls playing hopscotch vaporized in mid-leap, or of children leaning back from a spinning roundabout, leaving smoking stumps on the railings as their bodies flew into the burning sky. Big Ben would fall on a school bus. Nuns would flash into holy flames. Eighteen couples' orgasms would be their last. Twelve businessmen would be relieved of the fear of impending audits. The tops would be blown off of double-decker buses. The bottoms would tip over in flames, trapping the passengers who would claw and burn and melt into one, into a giant pool of bubbling flesh with many bones like broken tent poles. Tom saw all this and he felt love and rage. He loved the world because its days were numbered and he was still young enough to love numbered days. He felt rage because he could not think of a way to stop it. He had tried at Oxford to argue that arms could be stalled only by arms, but it was not believed. And he could think of nothing else. He wrote letters to the Times, but they were never published. He argued with strangers in pubs, but he was always waved off. He was perceived as having an upper-class accent, but lower-class Ideas. Only madmen speak of the apocalypse. This is what it must have been like in the Middle Ages, he thought, recalling Count Orsky's art collection. A man runs to a town. The plague is coming! And the townspeople laugh into their drinks. He is an alarmist. Melodramatic. Unbalanced. The plague is a myth. It has never come before. He wants us to leave our home so he can loot them. Whatever happens is God's will. We would have had prophetic dreams. The king assures us the plague is past. What evidence do you have that you can press into our hands? And sometimes it seemed to Tom as he walked that perhaps this blind world was not worth saving. He knew that he could not save it, but he felt that the desire to save it was the essence of some kind of humanity. 
but too many men have sold false prophecies to mankind for visionaries to carry any coinage. We look and sound the same, thought Tom, but we are not the same. And, of course, those who are already profiting from false prophecy breed endless mockery of all new visions. But he could not rouse much enmity for the greengrocer, the banker, the runner, the slow, swaying Asians. They know only the futures of their own lives, not of the world entire. No, he reserved his special hatred for the intellectuals. We pay our thinkers to make the future safe for our passage. But they have not just opened the door to tyranny, they have taken it off its hinges. They love Fabian socialism and Marxism and think there are some damned good ideas buried in the Mediterranean muck of fascism. And they think the state can solve all problems. They attack slum housing and hate factory owners and use force to bury initiative in endless regulation and red tape. They do not deign to argue with the free man. They simply enslave him for their policies. They are so arrogant that they believe that they alone know how to dispose of a free man's life infinitely better than he does himself. They will take his money, time, and life and redistribute it as they see fit. Why can he not choose the charities of his own accord? Is he selfish? Is that it? Is it because men are selfish that they cannot be free? But if they are selfish, then they also cannot rule, since one selfish man at the helm of a state is far more dangerous than a million soldiers that may be fought in the open. And if they are selfish and ignorant of their own best interests, then how can they be granted the vote? If a man will not voluntarily pay for the essentials of society, then how could he conceivably vote on complex social and political issues with any kind of wisdom. We cannot rule people in the little wisdoms and then grant them freedom in the great ones. It is one or the other. And the worst thing, the thing that truly did obsess Tom, was that these intellectuals would be the last to fight on any front. The professors who told their students that the group was everything and the individual nothing who called private property theft and insisted that the government could solve all problems if only it enslaved enough people, these professors would sit safely in bomb shelters while their students fell in red waves on some endless front, and they would learn nothing. No, thought Tom. I will save the greengrocer, but I will let fire rain down on the thinkers who have betrayed our passage through such narrow and dangerous passes. He decided not to reply to Reginald's letter. There would be no point. If Reginald interpreted Tom's silence as agreement, so be it. He knew a trap when he saw it. There was, however, the matter of Christmas, Christmas 1933. Tom had gone home for Christmas for the past two years, Christmas and Easter, the first because he was, though not a religious man, very sentimental about Christmas. This came from his years with Catherine, who regularly wept while tying red ribbons around little boxes and hugged him so tight he could feel his young ribs creaking like an ancient accordion. Christmas was the time which brought deep emotions closest to the surface. This had not been such a great thing when he was a little boy, he had many memories of his father scowling from the head of the table with his mother in tears or running from the room while Reginald glared at Tom as if it had all been his fault. Christmas also gave Tom two of his greatest joys, materialism and egalitarianism. Tom loved Christmas below stairs but hated it in the drawing room. Below stairs with Catherine and the others, he could run and shout and fall into giggles and take extraordinary delight in little presents. Catherine, of course, gave great gifts. She would find a favorite cap he had thought lost or thrown out, repair it, and present it back good as new. Also, knowing Tom's sentimental streak, as she should, since she had done much to nurture it, she would laboriously frame some childhood love letter he had penned to her, which he would weep copiously over, remembering all such tender childhood feelings and eternally 
grateful to her for helping him to retain them into his adulthood. Upstairs, though, things were different. It was not black and white. Tom did not live in a Dickensian world of earthy servants and cold parents. The servants would never imagine giving him books, say, and books were what he loved perhaps more than anything. Not any one, but anything. They never showed him places on the globe or challenged his patriotism or quizzed him on government policy. That was for upstairs with his family, and that was good and fun as well. As a teenager, Tom sometimes thought that his house was like a soul divided the head above and the heart below. Life could be lived by either alone, but he was never satisfied with that. Passionate thinking was his goal. Passionate thinking or intuitive intelligence. Why can't I know the capital of Burma and laugh at a fart at the same time? Reginald's dislike of bodily functions was legendary. It was one of the few weapons Tom had against him. And there was a curious lack of respect for the heart in the Spencer household. Quentin barely seemed to notice Catherine other than the occasional comment on housework or their evening meal. Tom's mother did notice her, but they had a curious relationship. Catherine always seemed to express a kind of tender concern for Ruth. But there was something snobbish about it on Catherine's side. Tom thought on this long and hard. Catherine was not exactly snobbish, but she viewed Ruth as someone who had broken under a load that she herself could have carried. Not necessarily with ease, but nonetheless. Once he had overheard her saying, Ruth is too pure for this world. There was something deeply true about this statement. It lodged deep in Tom's brain, and it took him years to figure out what she meant. It was deeply contradictory because Catherine obviously respected purity, but also had strong reservations about those whose purity cost them the ability to live in this world. It was the same thing with religion. Catherine was religious, but she did not turn the other cheek, as he recalled from her interactions with various tramps. If someone had suggested it, she would have been astounded and slightly contemptuous. With Ruth, she was like a natural farmer of hardy plants, given a lovely but frail hibiscus to somehow keep alive. Tom had come to the conclusion that it was all about death. Catherine was an expert on death. She had come from a farm originally and had been exposed to much shuffling of the livestock coil. My first five pets died in my arms, she would say with a sniff. And Tom found something so wonderful about this that his heart just about burst. Catherine loved her pets and mourned their passing, but did not mourn that they had to pass. That was rare, thought Tom, rare and priceless. Years later, when reading Galileo, Tom had come across the venerable Italian's argument that it was foolish for a man to be unhappy about death, because death was required to replenish life, and so if no one ever died, the man would never have come to be. That seemed quite reasonable to Tom. He found that being on speaking terms with his own demise actually allowed his heart to open wide, wider almost than the world. See, take, and love, he thought, for everything is passing. Whether we hoard or give, whether we love or stay aloof, fight or surrender, we are taken. So give, love, fight. Reginald, on the other hand, had inherited his mother's fear of death and seemed to guard his heart like a bluffing poker player guards a losing hand. During the Garden Wars of the Great War, it had been almost impossible to convince Reginald that he'd been killed. He always screamed that he had dodged, or that the shell was a dud, this was the case if a tennis ball had cracked, or that he had called for a break. He was also a terrible whiner whenever he fell ill. He worried and cracked his knuckles and did not sleep and could not lie alone. When the sick bird adopted by Ruth died, Reginald, who had shown no interest in it at all, turned green with horror. As a very young child, Reginald had been secretly terrified of the toilet. 
because he thought his feces were still alive when he flushed them. He was endlessly punished for not flushing. He refused to read stories where characters died, unless they were parents and died before the story began, which was good, since that was the pattern of 99% of all children's stories. In the remaining 1%, they die after the story begins. He hated cutting his nails, and it took considerable teasing at boarding school before he started. He disliked autumn intensely, but accepted winter with a cold heart. Quentin's attitude towards death was a little different, and it had to do with the effects of some of his major moral mistakes. As he aged, he began to get more and more tired. His face fell, not from use, but from flaccidity. Bags grew under his eyes. He gestured more limply. He could still summon a scathing kind of energy for debates or for convincing a hesitant fellow MP, but it was like a burst of sparks from a falling log. It seemed that, for Quentin, death was just the last sleep, the one you couldn't be roused from. This was not really bad, of course, because by then one would be so tired. So death was something to be pursued unconsciously by regularly depleting your stores of pleasure and energy until, at the last, you just couldn't be bothered to take another breath. Thus he combated his wife's fear of death by bludgeoning it with his own despair about living. And so it seemed to Tom that in the great division of upstairs and downstairs, rich and poor, there were consolations and pains in each. Basically, the rich had a better time when they were young, and the poor had a better time when they were older. The rich based themselves on vanity, which is the fantasy that life will never age, fail, and end. The poor based themselves on relationships, which means that they are trapped when young and cared for as they age. The rich start off rich and end up poor. The poor start off poor but end up rich. And they were not trapped, Tom noticed. He argued this most strenuously in university. The question of the poor, exacerbated by the Great Depression, was first and foremost in every undergraduate's mind. They were very worried about the creation of a permanent underclass, and about how awful it was that capitalism profited from keeping the poor under thumb and heel. But you say that the poor are limited, but you all think of the poor exactly the same way. How are you any more free than they are? You say that they have no options, but you all think that the poor have no options. You also have no options. Reginald would laugh at Tom's passionate speeches on this subject and would say, you all have to excuse my brother. It's hard to be progressive when you spent the first 15 years of your life wanting to marry your nanny. Catherine was perhaps the greatest possible coach for Tom's heart. The greatest agony of his young life was finding out that he had to leave Catherine's orbit. He was not sure why, perhaps to save her or people like her who could not save themselves, who depended on people like Reginald to protect them from dangers that they themselves could not see coming. I shall not leave my brother to guard the wall alone, thought Tom, even in his little room, when he had no idea where the wall was or how to get there. There was a parallel in the management of children as well. For some unfathomable reason, Tom thought, the rich are bad with infants and better with young men, just as the poor are better with infants and worse with young men. Catherine knew when I was moving beyond her. And that was such a sad thing when my growing fleet outgrew her harbor because we cannot all fit back in again. She is satisfied, I know that. She knows she has done what she could and does not regret my passing. Five pets died in her arms and one much-loved child outgrew her. Nonetheless, that is the way of the world and she has done her part for it. Oddly enough, 
But just as Tom believed that he had escaped thinking about his childhood, he was pulled back, as were all the other members of the family, by the birth of Reginald and Wendy's first daughter, Jocelyn. Tom had not been present at the hospital, but had received a printed card announcing the birth. No note. Nothing from either parent. He had sighed, feeling a throb in his chest, and realized that the stakes had been raised once more. But it didn't really matter. Their paths were set. He could not give in without becoming an entirely different kind of person, a person he would not respect or want to be. And neither could Reginald. Reginald, he was beginning to believe, had no capacity for change. No capacity for change. This idea first came to Tom when he got an offensively bland birthday card in June. It contained nothing personal except the signatures of his brother and sister-in-law. The poem was terrible and aimed for someone who was about 15. Tom's hand had closed over it for a brief moment. It felt so wrong to crumple the birthday card from a family member, but then he had crushed it and thrown it out without another thought. Well, that wasn't quite true. Actually, it wasn't even remotely true. That was the awful, humiliating part of it all. He had lain awake all night, twisting in his sheets, his throat tight, imagining Reginald's face as he licked the envelope and mailed the letter, the bomb on course for its inevitable target. The hatred of such an act, how it enrages me. Reginald knew exactly how it would strike Tom. There is no danger greater than a family member run amuck. There is no nerve ending that such an enemy does not know. And he has no vulnerabilities. That was the most maddening part of it all. It's not that I am so above it all. I just have no idea how to strike him back. He is nothing but a glossy, glossy hide of bright armor. I could spend the rest of my life and all ten of my fingernails searching for a chink. Tom had no tongue for the silky slashing of verbal vengeance. He yearned for it because he still imagined that he was in a fight that could be fought or won. If some shady goblin had come to Tom that night, the night of his birthday, and whispered, I can go and really hurt your brother's heart, it would not even have been a temptation. Tom would have accepted his offer, sent him on his way with a cheek pinch and a merry wink, and then slept the sleep of satisfied innocence. Or would I? This is where things got really insane. He imagined himself leaping out the window after the goblin, crying out that he had not meant it, that his brother could be turned around by understanding, or some sort of honorable submission, or, or something, but that retaliation was not an option, not the solution he wanted. And then, of course, if the goblin were to stop and turn, hovering in midair like a quivering dragonfly, then Tom would probably shake his head and wave him on, and then cry out again, round and round. What does one do in the face of endless subtle provocation? To fight is to lose. To stand still is to lose. To withdraw is to lose. So, Tom had some concerns about going home for Christmas. Christmas with the Spencers Tom's public humiliation of Reginald at the Oxford debate had passed into the dangerous, endless hole of family silence. It was considered too shameful to speak of. What had caused it could not be discussed. That would come too close to unraveling the family, which would be heartbreaking to Tom and Ruth, embarrassing to Reginald, and politically inexpedient to Quentin. Thus, because they had no words of condemnation, they retreated in silence, hoping that Tom would lash himself for driving them away. And it was strange to see just how physicalized the break was. When Tom even imagined bringing the subject up, backs would stiffen, conversation would lurch forward in any random direction, people would get unbearably thirsty or in need of fresh air. It could not be spoken of. 
Tom did not know that this meant that there was, in fact, no family, but only a theatre of conspiracy. But it could scarcely be imagined that he would discover this in his early twenties. Nature shields the young from the truth about their families until such time as they can truly break and truly survive. Catherine came to meet him at the station. She covered her mouth almost comically when Tom stepped off the train. He always wanted to drop his suitcases and run into her arms like the most rapid, sun-hungry plant in history. But he had been restraining himself for about eight years now, striving for something he considered more dignified than rank worship. But love is only undignified to the loveless. She hugged him tightly when he came in, and he let his cheek rest on her broad shoulder for a moment, a little surprised to be feeling her bra strap. "'Good to see you, Tommy,' she gasped. It had been more than six months since their last meeting. "'You too, Catherine,' said Tom, hugging her with all his might. She never flinched or cried out. "'Come on,' she said, disengaging after thirty seconds or so. "'I've got us a taxicab. How have you been?' Well, he said, I was in Germany. I know your mother got a letter from Gunther. Do you like him? asked Tom as they passed through the little waiting area. Yes, she said. He used to try surprising her with sudden oblique questions, but she was never, ever phased. I'm not normally a big fan of Krauts, but he's a bit of all right. She was distracted. That meant something was bothering her. One of Catherine's many wonderful qualities was that Tom never had to wait long to hear about what. Sure enough, when they were in the taxi, Catherine put her hand on Tom's knee and said, "'Tell me what happened with Reginald. "'Has he talked to you?' Catherine smiled a little grimly, Tom thought. "'He knows better. "'Now tell me I hate stalling. "'He... "'He made me so angry,' said Tom, glancing out the window." He suddenly noticed the back of the taxi driver's head. He had wonderful silver hair. He wondered, as he always did, if the driver was listening. He would never close the glass, though. At this debate? Yes. Your father seemed to take some pleasure in it. Feisty, lads. They do both youth and me no small credit. Tom smiled at her imitation. Catherine was an excellent mimic. Whenever he had pouted as a child, she had copied his expression down to the last muscle and tick, and he had always ended up laughing. He didn't seem too happy at the time, he said. Well, it was the wrong time, said Catherine. Hmm? Should have happened when you were boys. Catherine shook her head suddenly. No, I don't know. There's those that would have liked to see it, though. How have you been? Well, things are quieter. Better, especially with your mom and dad. They're like newlyweds. It's not because of you, she said, not looking at him, but understanding his thoughts. I don't know why exactly. They, they're pretending that nothing happened. That can work when you get older. Don't need to steer as much when you're closer to the shore, as long as nothing changes, no storm. Reginald is home already? She nodded oh, with that lovely baby. How is she? She's perfect said Catherine simply, and Tom suddenly realized that she felt with all her heart that that was how everyone started. Who does she look more like? That's a good mix, she replied, his beady little eyes, her lovely cheeks. They laughed. Familiar landscapes passed by the glass, trees of terror, ditches of hiding. Tom felt a little odd, as if he didn't have much to say. Then he realized why. I am keeping a secret. The secret of war. And she is not asking about Germany, which means that there is no reason to keep the secret yet. Still, I will not speak of it yet. Catherine reached over and took one of his hands, placing it on her lap and patting it slowly. I read about the debate, she said. What did you think? Couldn't follow it all, but... What's clear is clear. He's not for us, not for England, but you will be. Tom shook his head slowly. I shouldn't have humiliated him. It doesn't really matter. It won't amount to much in time. She smiled. And who knows? It might help. 
You know, the week afterwards, Randolph Churchill, the son of Winston, tried to get the resolution reversed. It was passed again with an even greater margin. There's something people think now, she said, like they're scared little girls. They think that good is like nice. Good is not nice. Good is like a sheriff in the Old West. Good has to be the toughest thing around. The bad men come to town. The sheriff doesn't go to the town hall and sit down with a committee. He doesn't take a vote. He doesn't whine. He pulls out his revolver and loads up. Catherine's lips were compressed, her jaw set. Good men have to have the courage to stand the suffering of others when they cause it themselves. Justice is hard. Justice is not kindness or charity. Justice is honesty and strength no matter what. Tom's eyes were wide. He had never heard her speak that way. What happened? Catherine shook her head slightly. She was a ball of passion. You're not the only one with eyes, Tom. The house was only a few minutes away. Catherine turned and looked at him. Tom, when you were going away to school, I said that you had to watch Reginald. I meant then watch over him. I don't mean that now. Watch him. For me. For everyone. Tom felt a deep chill. The very landscape seemed to darken. Why? What do you mean? You know, she said. Not as well as you do. Tell me, he said, imitating one of her phrases. The car was pulling into the front driveway. Catherine spoke rapidly. He speaks for me to the world, for England. But he does not love England. Don't interrupt. It's easy. How can he love England? He does not even love his own wife or his beautiful new baby. You can't love the big things until you love the little things, the close things. How can he speak for England? He can't even talk to his wife nicely. Catherine's eyes were searching his face, and she had never seemed more vulnerable to Tom or as lovely. He's got a bad idea about being strong, she said, even more rapidly as they pulled up in front of the granite steps. He wants to be strong over people rather than strong with people. Do you know what I mean, do you? Her gray eyes were wide, anxious. Tom said, yes. Yes, Catherine, I do. Her lips tightened slightly. Then she turned, opened her door, and levered herself out of the taxi. Tom could not help but wonder just where that wonderful woman might have ended up with a solid education. Then, he remembered, Reginald has had a solid education. Modern education seems to feed wisdom into the maw of vanity. In the front hall, Tom was kissed on the cheek by Ruth, who kept her eyes open and diverted as she did so. Her arms were tense on his forearm. I used to feed her, thought Tom sadly. Now I seem to poison her. His father came out of the drawing room, his glasses low on his broad nose. Tom, he said loudly. They shook hands. How was your trip? asked Quentin. Good. Early morning? Yes, but I feel fine. Tom always wanted to give the impression that he had been up early. It just seemed less unemployed. Well, take your things upstairs and unpack then, said Quentin, a trace of irritation in his voice. Tom sighed. In the family Olympics of short fuses, his father always took the gold. After unpacking in his old room, Tom lingered for a moment, sitting heavily on his bed, his back bowed. He loved the view outside his window. There were what seemed like endless woods. As a very young child, he had always felt that he would be able to wander them and find the remains of every German fairy from Gunther's storybooks, an overgrown, broken, sugar house, a rusty scrap of red hood hanging from a branch under the nest of a spider. One tree stood above the rest. It was such a clear metaphor that it had been obvious to Tom, even as a child, that it stood for him. It towered one long branch pointing to the east like a man with a rifle at his shoulder. Tom had always thought that it stood guard for him, but had dreamt more than once that it had turned and squatted in a rustling lunge, turning its rifle on his bedroom and closing one giant leafy eye. There was movement downstairs, and Tom knew that he would be unable to stall any longer. He got up slowly, brushed his hair back out of his eyes, 
then went downstairs. His mother, Quentin, Reginald, Wendy, and their baby were all in the drawing room. Reginald and Wendy looked pale, drained, and tired. Ruth looked polite, but uninterested. Quentin looked polite and uncomfortable. "'I feel like a feeding trough,' said Wendy, with a harsh smile, rocking Jocelyn rapidly. "'Or a buzzer pecked by some rat in some psychological experiment. Feed me! Feed me! I'm totally out of control. I start leaking if I hear a baby crying on the radio or on a bus.' I can't go out. I haven't had a good night's sleep in a month. Wendy is very graphic in her sacrifices, smiled Reginald, getting up. Ah, but here comes the prodigal son. Hello, Reginald, said Tom warily. Reginald grinned breezily. Hello, Tommy. He took his younger brother's hand and pumped it rapidly. How are you? Want some tea? No, thanks, said Tom, not wanting to take gifts until he understood the geniality. He bent over and kissed Wendy on the cheek. How are you? he murmured. Oh, Lord! cried Reginald merrily. Don't ask her that. You're likely to never eat again. She's very graphic. You said that already, said Wendy wearily. Ruth leaned forward in her chair slightly. Are things any easier with your family? We're meeting with her father after New Year's, said Reginald excitedly. He wants to see the baby. Things will thaw, you'll see. Do you think so, Wendy? asked Ruth gently. Wendy looked up, her eyes stricken. She looks just about all done in thought Tom. Wendy murmured, I hope so. Because then you can get someone in. We can take Catherine off your hands, smiled Reginald. Then Tom will have an excuse to come and visit us. Tom took a deep breath, very surreptitiously. Easy. Have a seat, son, said Quentin. Can I take her for a moment? asked Tom. Wendy eyed him cautiously. Do you have a lot of experience with babies? Not much said Tom, thinking that Reginald should have said, other than being one. Well, be careful then, she said, handing over Jocelyn. Hold up her head, it falls. Tom took the baby, then sat back in the sofa next to Wendy, who radiated stress. He lay Jocelyn along his thighs, her head on his knees. Hmm, said Wendy. I never thought of that. Jocelyn was awake, her eyes fixed on Tom's. He felt... A bit of a primitive shock. A baby is eye contact without strain, which is something he had not experienced in many, many years. Her eyes are so clear, he whispered, unable to blink. No flex. Beautiful. And look at her feet, said Wendy, reaching over and pulling off Jocelyn's little socks. Her toes are always curled. It's the only part of her with wrinkles except for her hands. They're born with the ability to turn their heads for milk. Her face softened, and Tom saw something lovely deep under her skin moving silently. Tom felt hypnotized by Jocelyn's clear, lovely irises. She looked unbearably serious. The entire family seemed frozen, staring at Tom and the baby. He leaned down, and inhaled all five of her toes into his mouth. "'Good Lord!' cried Wendy in a mixture of delight and horror. "'I only bathed her yesterday!' Tom blew against the bottom of Jocelyn's toes. She was not ticklish. He pulled his head back up. "'Well, I'm not hungry any more,' declared Reginald. Wendy shot him a look. Tom continued to gaze at Jocelyn. After a long moment, her other foot came up. He drew it into his mouth. She smiled a little. "'Can you make her roll over, too?' asked Reginald. "'Play dead!' "'Oh, Reginald!' groaned Wendy. "'What?' asked Reginald. "'With those skills, he'd make an excellent nanny.' "'I think that's very nice,' said Ruth, staring at Tom. It was clear in her voice that she did not really know what to think of it at all. Tom had never spent much time around babies. It is most strange, he thought, staring at Jocelyn, ingesting her appendages. I never really thought of them as human, as people. But she's really there, and so am I. It starts so early. Wendy laughed suddenly and put her hand on Tom's arm, resting it on his cardigan. She really looks back, doesn't she? Tom nodded. It's very hypnotic. She could... "'Issue me commands. Feed me. Take me to your leader. Eat my foot,' giggled Wendy. Quentin grunted. 
That's good, Tom. You were excellent with babies. He turned to Reginald. So how are things at the foreign office? Reginald smiled. Well, we are a little hobbled by the election in Fulham, which Baldwin is taking as the holy writ of pacifism. Quentin nodded. Uh, to lose a seat by 7,000 votes just on the issue of rearmament would give anyone pause. And it's amazing just how quickly the Germans respond to things like that. The next day their position had hardened. It's hard for a democracy to bluff. And Germany withdraws from the disarmament conference in, what, mid-October? That thing has been running forever. Reginald nodded. Eighteen months. Is that bad? Reginald shrugged. Well, those happy fools who drew up Versailles put a clause in, which said that Germany had to disarm right away, but that we, the Allies, would disarm later. So the entire time of the disarmament conference, the Germans have been using that as a lever, saying, We have disarmed according to the treaty, now you must disarm according to your very own treaty. And that's tough, because everyone knows that Germany has not remained disarmed. But you couldn't say that. The Germans are masters at taking offence. They storm out even more than the Russians. So the issue was dead? asked Quentin, twirling his teacup on its saucer. Hmm, well, it's dead insofar as Germany does not seem to want to disarm any more. They know that there are a lot of Englishmen who favour unilateral disarmament. They have the moral leverage, damn them. Sorry, Wendy. Insofar as we promised to disarm at some point back in 1919. So they say, disarm as you promised, while they secretly rearm. And we have the Labour Party, as well as all the various socialists, the Fabians and communists who want to disarm us. And Versailles said that Germany was only limited in her right to rearm until she was in the League of Nations, which she has been for seven years. But the Germans don't have a problem with us. They are more than happy with our current pathetic military state. The problem is France. There are only three options. Either we allow Germany to rearm, or we all disarm, or we all have an arms race, which only the dictatorships would win since they don't have to worry about civil revolt. France will never allow Germany to rearm and won't disarm herself. Thus, we are faced with an arms race which we cannot win. We don't want Germany to have aeroplanes because we're vulnerable from the air. France does not want her to have men and guns because she fears a land war. And, unofficially, we have given the go-ahead to Germany to rearm on the ground. France will doubtless find out in time, but I find it hard to support a country which has become so socialistic. So we are in a pretty pickle. But it's all nonsense anyway. Why? Reginald rubbed his thumb rapidly against his fingertips. The cupboard is bare. There's nothing in the treasury to rearm with anyway. And we have no navy left, at least none that can guard the three oceans and the Mediterranean. Ever since all our American loans got called in in 29, we've just been treading water, just trying to keep our noses up. He laughed. If we stop paying the unemployed so we can pay for arms, the Germans are the last thing we'll have to worry about. Actually, I think they'd be pleased, agreed Quentin. Wendy laughed harshly. No wonder the rooms for after-dinner conversation are segregated by sex. I swear, sometimes I think that Reg is closer to the Germans than his own daughter. Tom touched his fingertip to Jocelyn's cheek. Her skin was so fine and soft that it was almost impossible to feel the point of contact. He touched his own cheek to check the difference, but it was hard because he could feel his finger touching his cheek from the point of view of his cheek. What do you think of Hitler? he asked, gazing down. Dad or me? asked Reginald. Either or. Go on, Dad. Well, he is a cunning, resourceful man. To go from Austrian corporal to German chancellor is quite a feat. Do you think he's dangerous? asked Tom, looking up. His father seemed pleased. Well, and I'll keep this short for the sake of the lady's sanity. He's clearly not insane. He is a shrewd, and amoral demagogue. He wants power, and having got it, he will want to keep it, so he will create an external enemy to keep the resentments of his people directed outwards, all fairly standard. The only real question is, will he stay inside his own borders? And I think that the answer to that is yes. He has his work cut out for him for the foreseeable future, at least. Eliminating internal enemies, consolidating his power, reviving the economy, and then... Reginald smiled. Well, that's going to be five years at least. We'll keep our eyes on him, don't you worry. What about his book? asked Tom. Oh, for heaven's sake, cried Reginald. That damnable book. Yes, dear, sorry. I hate him swearing around Jocelyn, said Wendy, watching Tom, watching her baby. He wrote that, 
Nine years ago, in prison after his failed putsch, he was dictating it while a political prisoner. He said what he had to say to get power. But that book is the ravings of a madman, and madmen do not get power. No matter how convenient that might be for those addicted to conspiracies, ergo, Hitler is creative. He knows how to appeal to a crowd. He was voted in legally. For Germans to have voted madmen in, they would have to be all mad themselves, or at least the majority. It's all nonsense. And it doesn't really matter, said Ruth quietly. Her sons turned to her curiously. Quentin did not, for he had, since gaining office, become increasingly aware of and dependent on his wife's security. "'Why is that?' he asked. "'Well,' replied his wife, "'if he is mad, then we are doomed. If he is mad, civilization will not survive. So we have to act as if he is not mad.' "'Quite right,' smiled Quentin. "'I have made that point more than once in the house. It seems to have taken effect to a large degree.' "'Certainly Cathbert has been converted,' said Reginald. "'Actually, it was he who converted me. "'It's strange to think that the idea might have come to me from mother originally.' "'Ruth smiled at him. "'All right,' said Wendy. "'Now we will simply have to change the topic. "'I am utterly housebound and don't want to have my rare adult time "'riddled with fears of war and dictatorships. "'I demand something pleasant.' "'And what would you have, my dear?' asked Reginald. "'Reginald, if you knew what I wanted now, now,' said Ruth. Let's hear from Tom. Tom smiled. He was massaging Jocelyn's fat little calves. My gosh, she's quiet with you, whispered Wendy. Tom spoke to the group while still staring into the infant's eyes. I'm starting a flight school, he said. There was a pause. Really? asked Reginald, his eyes wide. Tom smiled. I've spent the summer getting my instructor's license out at Hendon Airfield. I haven't spent much money over the last few years. I've put a down payment on an airplane. Haven't I, Jocelyn? He asked, jiggling her legs. She gurgled and giggled. There was another pause. When did this all come about? asked Quentin. Well, Klaus introduced me to flying, said Tom, looking up finally. I love it. I have time to kill. "'So this is going to be some sort of permanent occupation?' asked Reginald, his lips only slightly curled, which Tom thought very kind. "'Yes, well, for now. And then? And then? Well, that all depends. On what?' Tom held his brother's gaze, then glanced at his father. "'On whether you're both right about Hitler.' "'Ruth.' flinched visibly at Tom's words. Her left hand rose delicately and touched the hollow above her collarbone. Quentin glanced at her, his face rigid with terror. Then he turned to Tom. Well, Tom, there's really no call for such paranoid statements. We must all press on with our heads and spirits high. That was not very nice, said Wendy. She stood up and held out her arms. I think I'd better take my daughter now. As always, in times like this, Tom thought of Catherine. And almost the moment that he thought of her, she appeared in the doorway to the hall. Dinner is served, she said. In her mother's arms, Jocelyn burst into a frightening wail. An alignment had taken place over Tom's comment, an alignment which fell across traditional lines. Quentin and Reginald were angry at Tom's heartlessness. Ruth had withdrawn into her bloody shell. Wendy remained ambivalent. She suddenly liked Tom and he her for the first time, but she was clearly disturbed by his comment. One did not make jokes about predicting war at the Spencers. That was the second worst possible sin. The worst was predicting war with a straight face. The family had clearly decided to assume that Tom's comment had been designed to score points off his father and brother at the expense of his mother's peace of mind and possibly sanity. They could not speak openly, so the only punishments they could inflict on Tom were withdrawal and tangential attacks. The Spencers had a lot of petulance, and petulance is worse than anger because anger is strong and clear, while petulance is weak and undermining and murderous. 
The dinner conversation was full of old family stories which were always detrimental to Tom. Quentin and Reginald watched Ruth out of the corners of their eyes, counting each pea which made it from her plate to her mouth. Tom wanted to shout at them to stop because he knew that his mother hated being watched in that way. But to say that would be to say that they were watching, thus exposing why they needed to watch, thus recalling Tom's statement and all the dangers it held for the family, in particular for the two men who were in charge of preventing war and who imagined that unpleasant things could be averted by pretending that they did not exist. Tom suddenly realized something and stopped chewing his buttery mashed potatoes for a moment. Mother's depression was ignored until father decided to go into politics, at which point he could do something to avert her fear of war. It was not an acknowledgment, not a clear public one, but it was something, something which said to her, your sadness is real and something will be done. And my family cannot admit the possibility of war because the last war destroyed our family. Tom shook his head, impatient with himself. No, the war did not destroy us. It revealed our prior destruction, our terror in the face of our mother's sadness, our inability to comfort, to listen deeply, to mourn with her all that she had to mourn. Tom looked up. His mother was staring at him. Something deep and dark passed between them and Tom found himself utterly unable to swallow.